Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon. <clears throat> Welcome to another MTech Access w Words of Wisdom webinar. I'm Tom Clark, and it's great to be back talking to another prominent leader from health and social care, oh, well, and beyond in Phil's case, and we'll get into that. Um, thinking about what's happening in the future, what's happening now, and and how health and social care is is changing for all of us. Um, Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Phil Webb, who is Chief Executive of Respiratory Innovation Wales. Those three words, each of them individually, I think we're going to get into in, in a bit of detail. Um, Phil is a health economist, he's a PhD, and he has experience working with industry. He's at the forefront of innovation, uh, introducing innovation to the health system in Wales, uh, has extensive networks at senior levels in Welsh Government as well. Phil's, at, um, Phil's come from uh, sorry about that. Phil's come from a role in uh, as head of value-based healthcare at Cumtaf Maganig Trust, and prior to that, director of planning and innovation at Valindra Cancer Centre. Uh, and I'm sure he's got some tales to tell from those in, in terms of innovations that have happened during that time. So, Phil, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Um, yours is a, a fascinating organisation. Can you tell us a bit about the organisation and a bit about your role? Thanks, Tom. So, uh, Respiratory Innovation Wales, quite frankly, is an experiment. Yeah, uh, we are a wholly owned subsidiary of Welsh Government, uh, limited by guarantee, not for profit. But the experiment really lies in where Respiratory Innovation Wales sits. So, we do sit in health and social care, but we also sit in economy. And the idea behind that is to acknowledge the fact that health and well-being is intimately related to the wealth of communities uh, and although there is fairly limited research data on the impact of wealth people are starting to recognize that the affluence and wealth of a community is fundamentally related to the particular health of that community and its well-being so it's a new thing uh, there are a number of discussions in Welsh Government about these type of thematic models. So you'll note that in the title, it's about respiratory innovation. So you'll possibly be seeing in the next four or five years, a number of these thematic oriented organisations being developed as part of the global structure in Wales around health and social care and the economy. Uh, we are the second version. So the original template was around the Welsh Wound Innovation Centre, but we are an iteration as an organisation above that. Yeah. Um, my, my role is I'm chief exec here, uh, but largely the role of a chief exec is a bit mystified in an organization like mine. So uh, I am largely, and I'll um, use some words that describe what I actually do. I'm a relationship manager. I'm a join up the dotter. Uh, I'm a risk taker. Uh, and I've been called a future naught. So part of my remit is to explore the art of the impossible and make it happen in a way that benefits health and wealth for the population of Wales. 
Fantastic future note. I like that as a as a word. Um, just for our, our listeners, our, our viewers in England, it sounds a little bit like Respiratory Innovation Wales is a bit like an academic health science network, an AHSN. Is that a fair comparison or, or is there a real distinction? I think that there are some similarities and we've had a bit of a conversation and I've spoken to people who are in academic health sciences networks. I think there's a, there is a fundamental difference um, and it goes down to what drives my KPIs essentially and what I'm performance managed against. So I have a responsibility both to improve the health and well-being of Wales, but I also have a, a set of KPIs that are looking at inward investment and economy, probably in a more profound way than the academic health sciences networks actually have. Uh, and I am tasked to achieve under both of those remits uh, and basically to inject go forward on innovation and collaborations, both on a national level, so Wales, uh, on a UK-wide level, Wales, England, Scotland and Ireland, and on an international level. And there is an expectation, particularly post-Brexit, that we use the powers that are afforded to us by Welsh Government to be able to transcend into international markets in collaboration with our partners to be able to do that. Yeah, fantastic. So I probably don't need to ask this question, but what, what is it that excited you about taking the role on? So this, this is quite a funny story. So uh, I got asked whether I'd be interested. And my first question was, um, does the chair and the medical director actually want to do something? Right? Uh, because I'm not going to sit around for two years doing nothing. So my main motivation and drive is to actually physically do something that makes a difference. Uh, and I needed to know why I'd be joining RIW and some of the ambition and motivation that existed in senior exec team at RIW. And they both conclusively persuaded me that their ambitions aligned, aligned to mine. So we have a real opportunity in RIW to actually make a difference over a time course of at least three years, which is the terms around which we've been incepted, uh, and to visibly show how we're making a difference in both health and wealth. And for me, that's a very different, very prospective and very dynamic way of trying to achieve something that impacts fundamentally on the way that our communities live and prosper. And that to me was the exciting part of all of this. Yeah, okay. Um, so in, in Wales, one in seven deaths is the result of respiratory disease. That's quite, quite significant numbers, obviously. How achievable, given your remit, is it to, to make a significant impact on those numbers? Well, I think the uh, the answer to that is a difficult one in reality, but I think we're focusing largely on the wrong thing uh, and we've always focused potentially on the kind of the wrong thing. So am I interested in uh, extending the life expectancy of the general population from about 80 years to anything beyond? I think as a deal to the citizen, if somebody was saying that you could have good quality life and well-being and a prosperous lifetime, 80 is not a bad idea, right? So the focus and inappropriate focus on extending people's lives excessively, I don't think is what the health and uh, wellness agenda is actually about. It is maximizing your lifetime opportunity to have a good life that we're interested in. So I see it as being a different dynamic. My dynamic is 
how can I impact on populations that make them more resilient and more able to self-manage their symptoms, signs and conditions and live in prosperous communities to allow them their maximum enjoyment of their lifetime that they've actually got? So I think we, we focused on the wrong thing if we answer that question. I am about improving health and well-being and the emphasis is on community well-being, population health management and living well. So I think if you turn it around, I think we can have a direct impact on those things, whether or not the average life expectancy of somebody in Wales in the next three years changes as a result of what we do through spiritual conditions. I doubt that very much. Mm. So it's it's I'm taking that you're looking much, you know, much earlier in life and almost, you know, pre-birth as well. You know, you're looking at all those factors, not just how do we better manage someone's COPD and how do we give them that slightly extended life. So it really is a sort of seismic shift in in that perspective of health. Is that right? Yeah, I think the thinking shifted and it's largely around the fact that Wales has very heavily brought into values-based healthcare and is trying to determine exactly what it means by values-based healthcare. So often uh, now you will see in health boards that it's not about the uh, managing acute exacerbations of disease and trauma that we're investing our money in. We are looking far more about the preventative agenda, population health management, things that stop people getting disease in the first place, looking at how communities actually manage themselves and the individuals in their communities make less risky choices about lifestyle management, um, we're very going to be heavily investing in social prescribing. We're very heavily going to be investing in emotional and psychological support for communities. Um, living well is a very important focus around the new programme for Welsh Government for the Sixth Senate around recovery and reconstitution. Yes, we know COVID has caused us major problems and has created a backlog of very acute disease. But our real focus is on the next 10 and 20 years about how we can encourage children who are 10, 11 and 12 years old actually make better choices through their education and their communities and the way that they want to live their lives and using technology to support them making those kind of choices. Yeah, fantastic. So the last couple of times you've spoken, you, you've used the phrase medical medicalizing deprivation. Can you just explain and expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, the feeling is, even from health professionals, that we've largely defaulted to allowing our most deprived areas with the illest populations see the solution to their problems as prescribing them a pill or an intervention uh, without actually fundamentally looking at the wider determinants about why those people in those communities actually are suffering from those conditions. So the wider determinants of health, the wealth of the population in the community, the ability to get good, uh, well-paying jobs for that community, uh, community resilience, the ability for self-care options and different ways of trying to get people fitter and healthier and improve their mental health on that perspective is the things that we've really started to focus on. And it comes through in NHS England and you describe it as population health management. We describe that as values-based healthcare. And it's doing things that we know have an impact on that community that aren't about the acute end and side of things. It's about kicking that up about what choices people make in their lifestyles. I've always said to you, you get sick of it, you're not born from your mum with type two diabetes, right? What our investment needs to do is understanding why communities get to high levels of type two diabetes prevalent in their communities 
and do something about lifestyle options, what choices are made. Uh, foods deprivation is a classic one that causes diabetes. Yeah. Support for communities and families. Yeah. Uh, managing their opportunities through education. These are the things fundamentally in 10 to 20 year trajectories that will have an impact on things like type 2 diabetes and chronic respiratory condition, standards of housing. So these are all things that aren't normally discussed when we talk about health and social care, but it needs to have a paradigm shift in the language and what we're talking about in order to enact that and make that happen. There's always yeah. going to be a need in the meantime for acute services and medicines. What we're trying to do is turn the Titanic around before it hits the iceberg. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, are there, are there any specific um, ways in which RIW Respiratory Innovation Wales is approaching or is thinking about approaching these challenges that that maybe differs from that NHS that health approach that we've used in the past? So, so I think we're trying to foster collaboration, not competition. So, so this is a challenge that can't just be solved by health and social care. It involves local authority partners. It involves criminal justice. So having a discussion about where these things should rightfully sit and looking at the interventions that we actually are using is quite key to this. So, for example, uh, we're about to run with IBM uh, an exploratory day on the future of intelligent dwellings. So if we look into the future and imagine that an intelligently constructed house will tell you and stream you information about how to manage you living well, eating well, sleeping well, yeah, being well, being mindful in your house. We start to look at the house itself as an intervention and the conversations that I've had from manufacturers and uh, housing associations and builders, just had one yesterday, was it costs us no more to develop an intelligent house with intelligent tech built into it than it would from a standard house. So why are we not exploring how people are living as an intervention and how they're living well, right? So it's a much wider, much broader approach. And RIW's job in that is your standard of living, the pollen count and the environment are fundamental determinants about why you have an acute exacerbation of your asthma or respiratory condition. And unless we start tackling that on a multidisciplinary level, we're not actually going to get to a point where we're actually reducing the number of exacerbations or ill health that's actually occurring as a consequence of not managing it. The solution isn't prescribing an inhaler. The solution is looking at how you are living in your community and how your dwelling supports you living well. So, so you mentioned the interesting thing there about the cost of development of a smart home versus a, a, a dumb home. Um, that shows that one of the probably perceived barriers to doing things differently doesn't exist or is is massively overplayed um in that context and, and in you know the, the change that's coming about is there a, a burning platform that you're working around in or, or working from in wales that's kind of the um precipitator of, of really different ways of doing things or or is it a consensus has been achieved over time no, I think part of this is the socialization of the idea and the ability to actually build something, right? So the idea and the objective of having dialogue with partners about this intelligent building space, yeah, is I'm waiting for one of the leaders at one of the local authorities, possibly Torvine, but I couldn't say, yeah, to actually build one of these in Torvine and say, look, people, this is what we've actually built. And anyone can come in and actually look at how an intelligent building would actually interact with them in reality, right? Bottom line being, it's no 
the cost is no different from you buying a 250,000 pound house because this is a 250,000 pound house but will the tech built into it so i think the visible demonstration about how technology can support people linked into things that are happening well so there's there's four regional city deals happening so what we're trying to do is plan for the future and our planning for the future is we need to ask fundamental thematic questions about what is the future of buildings what is the future of transport what is the future of labor right we've already had a flavor of what the future of labor is because of covid mm. yeah, people are more agile from the way that they work they don't actually have to go to a very expensive estate to do their work in and people are more mobile as a consequence of that so all these things all these thematic areas we need to look at because that is the interplay between wider determinants about why we understand people live well or live poorly or are wealthy or aren't wealthy and how they can use that information and data themselves to have a better more productive and meaningful life mm. and what, what what makes wales different from the rest of the uk that that doesn't seem to be as far in terms of the practical side of this well we're welsh for a start i think so it, the, the, the politics are different Right. So in, in Wales, the, the politics is still a, a, a politic around solidarity, right? That there is much more of an investment into having community and collaborative ways of working across Wales. We're a small population at the end of the day, right? So we're not going to beat England in terms of the size of economy or our spending power or anything like that. What we do have, yeah, is a collective willingness and a closeness to the centre that allows us to have a proper dialogue really quickly about what really matters to our population and what doesn't matter to our population. Um, we have secondary legislative powers. So unlike Birmingham, we're about the same size as Birmingham, yeah? Birmingham can't make laws on secondary legislation for health and social care, we can. So we have an armament of stuff in Wales that make us large enough to do something meaningful and small enough to do something quickly. And that's what we're trying to take advantage of around recovery and reconstitution with the six Senate. Um, we're trying to promote Wales being open for business, and that is an often used term and a euphemism, because in reality, we're not in a state of readiness to do business, to be honest, but we're trying to get there as a political will to do that in a cohesive, concerted, and community-spirited way. Uh, one thing I probably think is an advantage for Wales is that we routinely sit on national forums as groups of people, so there is, a national heads of innovation meeting that happens every two weeks in wales we know each other particularly well and it's the trust and relationships that we built that will possibly give us an advantage in actually doing something and make it stick than the rest of the uk which is far bigger far more economically powerful but less cohesive uh, and less community oriented than we are mm. so I mean, that trust is a hard one thing, isn't it? And I, that's something obviously that's been done over time. Does that make for a situation where if you bring a new idea along, so whether it's uh, intelligent homes or something else, people are sat there kind of almost wanting to engage, wanting to hear about it and approaching with a positive mindset rather than other places where maybe it's, oh, here's another idea. We're not going to have the budget for that. So let's just sort of hear it out and move on. Yeah, it didn't always used to be like this, but I think in the last few years, a lot of the tribalism and the competitiveness, yeah, uh, has uh, made way for a principle of collaboration. So part part of that is 
it's impossible for everyone in NHS England to know each other as well as we do in Wales. Yeah, the, the geography just doesn't support it, okay? It is very different in Wales. Uh, we've got good relationships with Betsy Cadwallader, which is at the furthest north end of it. I'm in, I'm in South Wales, the furthest southwest of it, okay? The geography and the distance and the cohesiveness and the closeness to the centre politically, okay, allow us to get to a point where we can, if we wanted to, agree a lot quicker. Yeah, in a concerted effort than happens yes. the, the other side of the, the, uh, of the seven. And the other thing is, to be quite frank, and this is swings and roundabouts, we don't change everything every five seconds. Right. So we've had integrated health and social care for a good time now. Yeah. Most of our senior executive positions don't change that frequently. Mm. The board structures have been board structures for a fair amount of time to allow us to mature what we're actually doing now. That creates a, a closer sense, uh, sense of you know who you're talking to and the relationship side of things, yeah? The downside is sometimes the motivation and the requirement to do things and innovate quickly disappears out of that. And you could say that there's parts of that that become quite apathetic to change, okay? Yeah. So it is brings around, at the moment, I would say the closeness, the security, the longevity allows us far more benefit in collaboration and trust yeah, then perhaps the thing that we fall foul of, which is the urgent need and requirement to innovate in particular areas. Yeah, really interesting. So would you have any messages, I'm thinking there must be some in there, for in people leading integrating care systems, working in integrated care systems in England, or people wanting to work with them around kind of the, the groundwork that needs to be done or, or the expectations in terms of how quickly you can deliver significant change? Yeah, I think the main thing that I'd say is don't underestimate the amount of effort that you've got to put in and understanding your population and understanding the people who can deliver change. Mm. Yeah. The the psychological motivation about what drives individuals behaviorally or organizationally always gets underlooked. Okay, because people just think, yeah, of course they're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Not everyone actually thinks what you're doing is the right thing to do, but unless you tend to spend time talking to them about it, you'll never get there. Yeah. So don't underestimate how much you need to talk to people to socialize your ideas number one number two mostly everyone will agree that focusing on uh, population health management and communities yeah and the wellness agenda yeah and for me how wealth interplays with that agenda yeah creating wealth will undoubtedly create better health in the community um it's interestingly because i just had a look at it so we're talking about the epidemiology of wealth yeah and the political economy of wealth both areas are massively under-researched almost mm. because people don't want to actually acknowledge how much that is a de wider determinant of health and how much it affects health so research into that area is much required and actually that's probably one of the determinant factors that makes individual communities work well live well and are well rather than anything else so People have reached some kind of agreement about how we're approaching this in Wales because of the conversations that have been had. And to be honest, there is no alternative. We have no financial resources to continue to plan to acute services in the way that we're doing because we're actually barking up the wrong tree. Mm. Yeah, okay. So what would you say to anyone that, that says that investment should be prioritized for clinical interventions and medicines over lifestyle changes and environmental improvements? So I would suggest that that is an appropriate 
approach to adopt yeah if your horizon is just short term yeah if literally what you're trying to achieve is to get over the uh, significant backlogs that's been caused by covid yeah and get to a stage where your waiting lists go down yeah fine that will achieve that that will give you a return that you largely manage the position for probably about 12 to 24 months okay it does not get you into the wellness agenda it does not get you into resilient communities it does not get you into a socialization of the distribution of wealth and and well-being at all all it does is it's a plaster on something and don't get me wrong it's the easiest one to actually do so if you're looking for a political fix that lasts for a short period of time yeah and keeps professionals happy for a short period of time you go ahead and do that okay you won't get the long-term sustainable changes that you need to have an impact on in your local communities and your populations if you do that you'll just get more of the same so for those people who advocate doing that yeah uh, be prepared for exactly the same conversation in 12 months time for those yeah. people who want to fundamentally make a change in their populations yeah you have to have a paradigm shift in the way that you're thinking and you have to understand what is actually important to your communities yeah okay so i mean at the moment we there is almost a necessary trade-off to some degree that we have this backlog we also have a population that whose health overall needs improving so you can either invest in the short term or the or the long term whichever way you choose to trade that off it's a difficult conversation with some people who miss out so what do you think we need to do around that conversation with the population around sort of investment in health and social care or care well i think it's actually part of a wider debate that needs to happen to be out of the public yeah um and actually it needs to look specifically in terms of what policy is actually developed as a consequence of it um there's a couple of policies, policy papers on wealth that basically say taxation is a way to, to redistribute wealth. Yeah, I disagree. I think if you go down that route, then basically the taxation fix doesn't do anything for you at all because it gets spent in the same way. What you really need is a way of redistributing wealth by encouraging local economies yeah, to be invigorated in the way that they're looking at manufacturing, the way that uh, new tech companies could start off and have an impact on their local communities. Yeah, And there are plenty of brilliant technological solutions that would fundamentally change the way that make the NHS more efficient or life generally more efficient, okay? Either of them. And that's what we need to encourage schools and communities to start thinking about when they're educating their 10, 11, and 12 year olds, yeah? Which is, you, in order for you to succeed, yeah, the only option that you had is to leave your community, right? What we're giving you is an option to invest in your community and set up a new business and build this type of new technology because of the investment and attraction that we're getting as a consequence of this principle from big players yeah big enterprise level people will be willing to invest in you because they see a return on investment in the, themselves either a better skilled workforce coming through that they can take advantage of uh, rapidly building new tech that makes a big difference and there's a return on investment on it yeah actual deployment into the hands of the actual user so one of my big bugbears at the moment that we're spending millions of pounds on research yeah and very little of it actually gets translated into something that somebody can ever use that's got to change right we don't do research for research purposes and spend taxpayers money doing so we research to build technology or to do something that ends up in the hands of the end user because otherwise it's a waste 
uh, and that needs to be resolved fundamentally. The way that we build tech according to how we describe needs has to change as well. There's very little examples of user-centric design to actually drive technology advancements that users already know will make a difference. Yeah, We end up building something for an industry partner and then trying to sell it without actually knowing whether the user wants it or not. So that's yeah. definitely Yeah, absolutely. A, a familiar story. So, I mean, what I'm taking in terms of that, that sort of investment question is that this isn't just a case of take the health budget and spread out in different ways. It's how do we bring other funding streams be that public be that private be that something else entirely to support all those different you know fundamental elements of uh, of a community of a population so that the health bit can still be the health bit but then everyone else is coalescing to drive different kinds of change would that be fair yeah and it goes back to the points that we started off with so the solution to this doesn't rely just in health and social care yeah it relies in the resilience the wealth and the uh, well-being of your communities so what we really need to see it sees regional approaches to this particular problem not health and social care approaches or local authority approaches okay these are all about concerted efforts to allow your population to flourish so mm. if you look at what new zealand is doing on flourishing populations yeah it's about encouraging the community to think bigger and better about what it can achieve for its own people and to create environments to be able to do that whether that's through tech companies developing tech in a particular area, the way that the education system works, encouraging kids to think differently about what their futures are, it's all part of the same thing. So if you were asking me, what would I like to see companies approaching us with? It's that kind of regional approach. Yeah. Mm. How do we tackle chronic conditions Yeah, by understanding our populations better, understanding what drives and what are the determinants of those conditions and actually doing something about it on a macro level at a regional level so yeah. it's all this what does the future what does the future city look like it goes back to that what does the future building look like what does transport mean in the future yeah how do people work in the future yeah what are their opportunities in the future those are all of the things that encompass that far more holistic approach to making our populations basically healthier weller and wealthier yeah and i mean I, I think in wales you're you're ahead of the curve in some respects but in terms of the data that you've got to inform this so how what do you use to understand your populations how much can you understand because in england there's lots of conversations about bringing social care data in and, and even health data isn't a single data set yet but but in wales what's the picture there and and what still needs to be done so there are moves to have a national data repository which will basically contain all the population, health and social care um, developed data. But I think we need to be far more ambitious on what we mean by data, really. Okay, So we already know, because uh, I talked to colleagues in HS England about combining financial data with data from social care, with data from housing, et cetera. Okay? And that's all well and good. The biggest data expansion that you're going to see is uh, Internet of Things streaming data. Right? People are going to stream masses and masses and masses of data from their everyday living from the technologies and the devices that they're buying phones smartphones smartwatches fridges tvs etc and actually the nhs will struggle claiming that that is actually health data which comes into why i'm here right so the nhs will struggle calling that health data i won't struggle at calling it data because i don't have to call it health data what i have to be able to do is warehouse that data in a way 
that allows us to create, curate it, to do it ethically and safely, to allow researchers to do work on it, to allow tech development companies to use that data to develop their tech. But the trick is to be able to link it to the other data sets that are available. So we're about to um, launch a new data set uh, called ARIA, which is basically SoundLab. So we believe if we can get you to make a recording into your phone of a sound pattern, we can use it to develop AI algorithms to diagnose disease just from your sound pattern for 60 seconds, okay? That voice data becomes incredibly powerful to do research on and to develop new tech off, okay? So we've already been in discussion with uh, the Breeze repository and with the NDR about us being able to curate that properly and then record linkage to the data sets to do the validation data sets when you start building tech. So that's all possible in the way that we're constructed within in, in NHS Wales. And that's where we need to go. There will be a new paradigm of what data actually is. Mm. It's not just the episodic data that we collect for your interactions, which amounts to less than 0.1% of your lifetime. It's the data of your life that you will be able to use as an individual to inform you about what choices have been made. Now, whether that's enacted through uh, what the future of your dwelling might look like, yeah, or uh, Alexa might be able to do that, or you might be able to talk to your fridge in the future, is largely down to the tech companies we collaborate with about how they want to deploy that data, yeah, and how you as a user want to use it. But that's the place that we're getting to. Mm. And that that sounds phenomenally powerful. I mean, you know, each one of us, you know, we're not even all the way through a, a, a Friday yet, and probably we've all exchanged you know, gigabytes and gigabytes of stuff and probably giving away a huge amount as you know Mike, mark zuckerberg will tell us about what he knows about we've done what we've done today and, and that's not being actualized in any way and you've talked before about you know we've all got a phone and that's the most powerful tool sort of known to man in some respects um in terms of the direct impact then and you've talked about you know you can use that to screen for certain things do you see technologies like that becoming day-to-day healthcare tools or, or a variation on that i i think that they will become day-to-day -day life tools right so this is about optimizing your life management uh, and as i said to one of your colleagues beforehand okay uh, would the payer who might be a consumer uh, not be willing to pay two pound 99 99p for this app if it was launched on app store right that will give you the chance if you've got a chronic condition like uh, asthma or copd to integrate your data in a way that tells you the pollen count today is X, yeah, your social, your calendar says you're doing a little social activity, you're going out tonight, and if you're on a medication, you might have to up titrate your medication by this because it's adjusted to what you're doing, okay? Conversely, tomorrow you're not doing anything, pollen count's really low, okay? You may, you may feel that you're fine not taking anything at all, yeah? It's about being able to uh, confederate and federate that data in a way that allows you as the user to make good choices about what you do. And I think that's the difference in what in how we're trying to approach data. This is data that's meaningful to you as the user, yeah, that we support you on by integrating other data sets to allow you to get good inference about what's happening in your life, right? Mm -hmm. The best person ever to make decisions about your life is always you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of, you know, I'm thinking of someone with, I'm trying to think what a relevant condition would be, someone with, you know, a chronic heart disease, something like that, who goes and sees their GP once a year, might go and see a consultant if they're, if they're uh, struggling. With 
these kind of technologies you know i'm assuming with the sort of voice technology you'll pick up a tremor in someone's voice that suggests maybe they're you know something's about to happen that it's trying to anticipate things like that what is the impact and what's the perception of some of your clinical colleagues on these types of technology well i think this goes back to the conversation which is spend a lot of time socializing these ideas yeah so in RIW, for example, we've got an affiliate network of um, respiratory clinicians, respiratory physiologists, people involved in respiratory management all across Wales. And that's the first thing that we try and do. We try and talk to them about what this is actually all about. So whether you're looking at um, cyclical thermal imaging around AI to actually be able to diagnose um, plural diffusion, uh, plural disease, respiratory conditions, or whether using your voice to be able to uh, supplement uh, clinical management and decisions around um, the COPD or asthma, it's all about having a conversation with it and it does impact on the way that we train the next generation of professionals. The next generation of professionals are going to have a whole swathe of technologies that were never available even to their previous mentors clinically and we need to focus in on how we educate people to appropriately use that kind of data. So the voice labs is just as much about educating physicians about how to use voice data appropriately as it is to be allow, allowing companies to build tech off the data that's included in there. So all of these things need to be socialized. You need to talk to them. You need to talk to industry partners about the way that this is going, how they might be interested in developing the tech that's associated and around them. Um, it'd be interesting, actually, to, to look at your home as a companion diagnostic. Bearing in mind, you do most of your stuff that we take samples off in your home anyway, yeah? <laughs> It would be great to get your home to actually get all that information together and, and, and send it off somewhere, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm taking from this that you're seeing these technologies almost as, you know, the next generation of stethoscope rather than a robot doctor that's going to completely substitute for clinicians. It's the next generation of how you will live. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think nowadays, your kids are growing up and they will accept the fact that tech is available to them in a way that gives them better choices about how they run their lives. This is why targeting 10, 11 and 12 year olds now is really important because they need to be able to know how that tech is going to be useful for them and what tech is available. And they'll make consumer choices, right? So the smartest thing I could do for health is that the next generation of diagnostics can be consumer downloaded or high school. Yeah. Because health is to pay then. You, you invest in your own health then at a rate that's affordable to you. So if you're going to get rid of the inequity or inequality bit of it, okay, it's got to be affordable tech yeah that somebody could make a decision on so mm. ultimately for the price of a packet of cigarettes you should be able to buy tech that really makes a difference to the way that you make choices in the way that you live your life do you think we and i'm i'm taking this we as as healthcare systems as the public and as people working within health and care systems do you think we're ready for a shift towards more tech enabled care both from an appetite and a, a sort of capability perspective? So that's an interesting question. Right? From, I, I'd answer it like this. Were you ready that you could uh, use your phone to book a holiday? Did anyone <laughs> get you ready for that? No, right? Did, 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 did FinTech get you ready for being able to go online and do a chatbot to uh, cancel your card or get a new password, right? So who, who did the readiness about that? That there is this myth around healthcare that somehow we've got to make people ready for the technology that comes through. Right? 
it's it's in your life already. Nobody prepared, no other industry prepared you for the technology that was available. In fact, banks basically told you, oh, we're closing all our branches. You can only do mm. stuff online. Yeah. So, so why does health have to make a special case for making you all ready for the technologies? It's quite an interesting social dynamic. It's like it's yeah. like putting health and social care in a special place, right? So, you know, you can book your holiday. Yeah, Tom Clark can spend 5,000 quid of his disposable income going to a hotel he's never seen in his life before, right? But for some reason, we have to make you ready for the fact that electronic record might be available to you and you might want to look into it, yeah? So I think there's double standards in the way that people live yeah. for some reason. And probably we need to get into why people think like that just as much as we need to get into making people aware that things like this are available to help them live better. So yeah, I, I, I like I like your response there, Phil. And I I think that sort of special case of of health and social care, you know, I suppose I'd I'd say back has health and social care made itself a special case over time? The the idea of you know doc, doctors inviting people in to come and see them when maybe they didn't need to to see them that you know stereotype. Uh, and I think there's a lot that hasn't changed at all in the 70 plus years of the NHS. Yeah, we've still got professionals who control access to what happens and what doesn't happen. Okay, so this is as much of a way of asking what we think the future of a doctor is and what's the future of healthcare professionals really in a tech enabled world than it is. The most reluctant people sometimes to use tech aren't the patients, it's the, it's the, it's the docs because they don't know handle it, right? Because they're looking at me sometimes and thinking, in med school, I was never prepared or trained for this AI algorithm says this about this, right? Mm -hmm. So you do need to get into the next generation of docs and say, it's part of your life now. You're using this anyway. People who you used to call patients yeah, will be using this to improve their information and their knowledge about their own condition. So you're going to have to get used to it and you're going to have to trust it because often if you're being very honest, it's better than you are at diagnosing disease. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what I'm immediately thinking is the government targets of recruiting 5,000 more GPs, actually, is that not joined up with the kind of stuff you're doing? And instead of thinking, right, we need 5,000 GPs in five years' time, should it be a case of, okay, well, what are the functions that can be yes. managed in different ways? So because we know we're never going to recruit 5,000, we might get another couple of thousand, we might not even get that, but that work might still need to be done or, or some support, some care, some whatever needs to be available for those patients, that population. How do we do that in a different way? During the industrial revolution, right, nobody asked miners, what do you think the future of mining is? Mm. Right? So this goes back to the way the way that our society thinks about different aspects of society really okay it's a proper question just like i'm asking what's the future of a building or what's the future of transport or what's the future of anything okay we have to ask hard questions about what the future of professions is in a technologically enabled society yeah and where they think their added value or the value they provide to individuals actually is and it actually goes back to the conversation about values-based healthcare ask people who interact with services where they think the value actually lies and what's the evidence behind what they say so it's just a as much a valid question to say if i can enable a dwelling to basically be your diagnostic companion and giving you good quality information about what's happening to you and what your choices are and how it impacts on your health and well-being okay 
in that context, what is the value of a, of a GP or a, or a specialist doctor or a physiotherapist or a nurse? Yeah. And what it will do is it will allow us to actually challenge the tenants that have never changed in 70 years. So it, it's amazing that we've already proved in the article in Nature five years ago now that uh, either a pigeon, yeah, so I'll, I'll hold it there, either a pigeon or, a pi or, or AI is better at detecting breast lesions yeah, in histology than 16 state registered dermatologists or uh, pathologists were, right? Improvement, right? But it's not got anywhere because we yeah. haven't had a conversation with the professionals about what this actually means in reality and what are mm. they scared of, really? Yeah, yeah, and I suppose fundamentally that population health approach or that the values-based healthcare. If you gave every person in in the UK their twelve or fifteen hundred pounds, that is their healthcare expenditure per capita, and asked them to allocate it to different things that were going to serve them how much of it, you know, it, it'd be interesting to see the breakdown and how much of it, if you had that conversation, would be thrown at people, how much of it, if they had the option of a, an app, a device or something. And I, I suppose that's sort of the crux of where this goes, isn't it? How do people want their money to be spent? Yes, <clears throat> in a very truthful and very honest uh, conversation about the status of technology versus the status of, of the professionals that I speak. And you know what? This is about a choice of gender as well. So we're not saying people have to use the tech that's available. Yeah, they will always have a choice. I think people do vote with their feet. So if this was a situation with banking, yeah, I think I've been down to my branch in Bridgend once over the last ten years, but I've always had the choice to go there if I wanted to. Right? I think our financial systems have to accommodate choice in a much better way. Right? And actually. We spend money on buying doctors in the healthcare service, okay? Well, why should that budget just be considered for the labor force? Why can't we say, actually, there's a technology that does this job or this function that this particular professional group do, right? So the choice is, we spend our money on people, currently 72% of 80% of the NHS budget is spent on people, or do we spend it on tech, in a way, because actually tech is proven to be better than in this particular function. Yeah. Okay, so what, what do you see as the role of medicines going forward? I think uh, for the foreseeable future, while we try and sort all of this out, because remember we're talking about long time horizons for this to actually take impact, okay? There's always the role for medicines. There's always gonna be the role for getting medicines into the hands of the right people who will do the right thing with them. I think that doesn't go away in the short to medium term horizon. I think what you'll be seeing is how medicines interplay with technologies a lot better. So uh, the advent of the smart device that monitors your dose, that tells you information about how you're using that particular medicine, uh, how that information is relayed back to you as the end user and into your healthcare system and how it supports you. Actually reducing the amount of medication that you actually take appropriately is probably the first dynamic that will happen. Yeah. And then over a time period, there'll be an issue ultimately. So on the diabetes front, ultimately, my aim is to eradicate type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Over a timeline of maybe 10 to 20 years. It's it's plausible that I could do so. Yeah. Because it is plausible that I could do so. In the meantime, for 10 to 20 years, there'll always be a role for medicines for the people who can't actually manage that. But I mm. think as as we progress with this very ambitious and progressive agenda, the role of medicines will go down and the role of how people manage their lives will go up. So 
uh, I see that there's going to be a booming industry in how you use technology to appropriately give people choices about managing their lifestyle. Mm. So the lifestyle, social prescribing, um, uh, technology supporting independent dwelling and living, and that type of technology will become more of a booming industry. Yeah, okay. So is, it, is that kind of the medicines being almost, you know, only where absolutely necessary? Or is that a, is there a trajectory to get to that sort of point? Well, I think the ultimate aim is you you only take what what you actually necessitate you to be able to take medical wise. Um, I think the timeline and the trajectory around that nobody can say what that looks like, but that is what we're trying to what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve appropriate medication for the people who need it in the right way and at the right time. Yeah. We're trying to get our populations to become more self-resilient so they don't get that far, right? Mm. So how you manage obesity, obesity is as much an emotional and psychological issue as it is a medication issue, yeah? We've just been failing our populations, not supporting them in a way that they can actually make a difference. And they've ended up either on medicines or in surgery, right? So chronic diseases like that, that are amenable, yeah, to subtly thinking about how we nudge populations to make less riskier choices, and what the technology framework around that is, is probably part of this growth curve. So I see a big growth in how technology supports psychological and emotional empowerment to make better choices. So I see that as a growth industry. And I think the medicine part of that will trail off. It will never go away. And I think there'll be an equalization about how we move forward doing that. Yeah, okay. Um... In terms of that bit, I mean, could you comment a bit on, you, you mentioned your uh, air, uh, area um, area, um, area um, earlier, which is about using voice to better target interventions, you know, to, to kind of phrase. We've also heard previously about precision medicine, genomic testing. Is it going to be a combination of all of those things that influence the picture? Yeah, I think it will be that there is a strong and quite vigorous lobby on, on precision medicine. Yeah. But I think that lacks vision. I think uh, understanding your genetic predisposition and understanding the um, the way that your genes interact and targeting therapies better. Yeah. Will be beneficial, but only in a in a framed way. I think understanding what drives your behavior. Uh, and your emotional and psychological resilience and how you make choices as a consumer yeah, has far more impactful and enduring uh, impact on your health and well-being. And that's the bit through technology that I think we largely need to get into. Um, it's very easy to criticize people uh, who smoke yeah, without actually understanding why they smoke. I'm sure if we spent more time understanding why people smoke and trying to do something about what drives them to smoke, rather than you know, punishing them for making them feel bad about smoking or imposing taxation on their cigarettes, that would probably get us to a better place where less of the population smoked. We don't spend enough time looking at psychological and emotional resilience and understanding behavior, both on an organizational perspective, on a population perspective, or on an individual perspective. And I see a lot of the most successful tech building that bit of tech in with them. This is about nudging populations and individuals to make better choices. This is not about massive changes about medications or, or medicines or the way that we're delivering healthcare. Yeah, You get a patient to understand what it is that they're doing or a person to understand what it is that they're doing. 
and you support them making better choices, they are far less likely to require healthcare resources. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, so we're just going to move on, on lastly to the other element of your role, I suppose, around kind of the, the industry piece, the, the economy piece. What, what needs to happen to improve NHS industry collaboration? So I think that there needs to be quite a lot of truth. Yeah, and I had this discussion at a Heads of Innovation meeting last week. The, the NHS in Wales couldn't, I don't want to comment so much in England, isn't open for business, right? right. Um, no matter how much rhetoric comes out of NHS organisations, okay, they fundamentally aren't ready for business or prepared for it, okay? And it's by exception that some organisations actually do stuff hmm. and stuff happens and things get developed in a collaborative way. There is no deployment framework for technology in the NHS. The NHS IT infrastructure is archaic. Uh, there's been investment made into it, but that's sporadic. Yeah. So when we say open for business, in reality, if we're being truthful, the NHS isn't open for business in the way that a business would say it's open for business. But then it comes back to why is RIW there? RIW is there basically to manage risks that health boards can't take and they can't take in any amount of time that allows the industry partner that they're working with to deploy it in a way that makes sense for the industry partner. And that's the biggest um, conversation point I'm currently having with health boards, which is how can RIW help you take risks that you can't take risks in? So a small startup could approach a health board and say, this is the idea that I've got, I need X amount of funding to do it. And the usual response is, well, we're interested but um, I have to have 59 board reports before I decide to do anything. And uh, I can't give you any money to do it. So we have to apply for a grant. Right. And if you're an SME with three people, guess what? You just went first. Yeah. You haven't got time to do that. So, so we are talking about vehicles for allowing small companies, medium companies, SMEs and enterprise to actually do something to a point where it de-risks the adoption of the technology into the NHS. Yeah, in a way that gets into the hands of the end user quickly. Yeah, okay. Are there, are there any key areas of risk that you see cropping up time and again that are either significant and, and they're big things that need to be tackled or they are the ones that the NHS typically balks at and says, that's not an area we're, we're comfortable with? So e e even the, um, the concept of setting up the um, sound lab area, yeah? So that required uh, an NHS organization to commit, uh, let's say, tens of thousands of pounds just to set up the data warehouse, et cetera, okay, right? No health board can do that hmm. quickly in the way that the people that were collaborating with want us to move it in there, okay? So um, the ones that could really wanted to have ARIA are the likes of Amazon, right? So, hmm. so Amazon were trying to bite the hands off the person who approached me, but we didn't think that Amazon was the right person to have ARIA in, right? We wanted an organization that would have proper links to, to health and social care uh, and the business community to be able to do something. So the person who was involved in it didn't want to give it over to, to Amazon. Amazon has snapped his finger off for it. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that health boards and, and uh, health enterprises find difficult to do is make quick decisions even on relatively small amounts of money, right? Mm -hmm. RIW can do that. That's what we're designed to do. Uh, RI, the other thing that happens is people come with ideas and they say, well, uh, how do I find an investment vehicle to do this? Or how do I do this? Okay. And all the all that happened with the health organization is it will put me in contact with somebody else to have a conversation with. Mm -hmm. So the length of time it takes 
for somebody to do anything is massively exacerbated if you talk to a health organization and even operational business things like um sticking yourself on a provider portal okay so unless you've got a vat number right and a company number it's very difficult to put yourself on a, on a big portal for uh, as a provider for one of the enterprise level companies okay so you try doing that for a health board who aren't registered in companies house as a company yeah <laughs> and don't have a vat registration number okay can't do it so our terms of business for businesses are different and health boards aren't ready to accept them or, or do anything with them and even the process of doing business the operational bit of it is really complicated and difficult so you can't make a health board a different beast the leopard just won't change its spots okay i'm speaking primarily from a wealth perspective okay you can't make health boards bastions of innovation and ready to do business because they're not actually legally set up like that mm. so why are we always pushing them and expecting them to be things that they don't want to when the obvious alternative is get organizations that could do this and take the risk on behalf of health boards to do it and then let's move on with the agenda rather than spending 15 months trying to work it out and the other bit and i have to say this advisedly is that nhs procurement in wales does not help itself mm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll leave that one there. But what would make you sit up and take notice if someone approached you to collaborate? So I would be really interested in an organisation that bought into the population health management fundamentally changing wider determinants of health view, right? Um, and you, you and I know we've had this conversation. That doesn't mean I'm a threat to their business, yeah? Mm. If you're a diabetic company, there'll always be a need for diabetic drugs because actually, even if you do this really well on a city citywide regional approach to tackle two, type 2 diabetes, okay, I'm not going to click my fingers and type 2 diabetes disappears in the next five years. If I could do that, I'm in the wrong job. Mm. Right? So it's about understanding the risks that the company are going to take but their willingness to engage on that kind of level to fundamentally improve outcomes in chronic con conditions and diseases which quite frankly are going to cause the healthcare system huge problems not only what's happening with covid now but what's going to increasingly happen as a consequence of the scars that have been left by covid yeah fantastic Thank you very much, Phil. We're just about out of time now. So, uh, yeah, thanks again for a very interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed that one today. Hopefully you have as well. Um, thank you, everyone, been watching it and listening at home. Um, if you want to get a more tailored perspective according to your own areas of interest, then drop us a line at nhsinsights at mtechaccess.co.uk. Uh, have a look at our website to see all the other things that we do throughout the business, all of which is informed by the insights that we gather from our, our NHS associates like Phil. We're going to be back on October the 22nd. I'll be speaking with Ellen Rule, who is a programme director at Gloucestershire Integrated Care System. We're going to be talking about the future of medicines optimization and how value will be assessed in integrated care. It's going to be a fantastic session again, so please tune in. Uh, in the meantime, uh, look after yourselves and I'll see you then. Thanks again, Phil. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.